Good morning, Bogota. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. I want to thank, as always, our generous series sponsor, my dear friends Becky and Avi Katz, and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Our learning should be Leila Nishmas, David Ben Menachem Manish. There are opportunities each week to sponsor the Shear, in addition to the series sponsor. If you'd like to, you can go online, brsonline.org slash sponsor. We'd love and appreciate your support. A great opportunity in honor and memory of uh, someone to sponsor the Shear itself or to sponsor the write-up that you can get delivered right to your inbox every week, a write-up of the Parsha Perspectives. Okay, this week we have a double Parsha. We're finally catching up with Eretz Yisrael, Matos and Masa. We begin with Parsha's Matos, page 900 in the Art Scroll, Stone Chumash. And there the Torah tells us, Moshe spoke to the heads of the tribes and he said the following, This is the thing that God has commanded. What did God command? If a person takes a vow, if a person makes a pledge or a promise, you take an oath, The word Yachel, Rashi tells us, comes from the word Chulad. In contrast to Kodesh, like we say in Havdalah, Lahavdil ben Kodesh Lachol, to distinguish between that which is holy and that which is profane. So, holy, we use our words to create and to build holiness. Don't profane your words. Don't make your words chulat. Speech is sacred, it's holy. We can construct, we can build, or we can destroy, we can eliminate, we can knock down. If we use our power of speech properly, we can create and build. And if we abuse the power of speech, we misuse it to slander, to gossip, to criticize, to complain. Then lo yachel dvaro, we've taken our very word, and we've turned it into something chol, the potential for holiness and sanctity, and we've made it something which is profane and mundane. Rather, everything you promise, everything you pledge, everything you say you're going to do, you need to and you must do. Last year we focused on this Pasuk and shared several interpretations of it. I told you an amazing story of Mori Varabi of Shechter, who to this day does not take sugar in his tea because he once told someone he doesn't. Whatever you say has to be true. Whatever we say, we have to follow through. Our word has to be our bond. It has to mean, it has to mean something. Rashi says, Lo yachel dvaro, kemo lo yechalel dvaro, yechalel dvaro, lo yasa as we said, don't turn it into something which is chulan. Bzeidel Epstein, the great Bzeidel Epstein, we've been quoting from his Sefer Ha'aros, Bzeidel Epstein said that he heard from Rabbi Yerucham, the Mashkiach of the Mir, who said, we learn Parshas Nadarim and Mesachas Nadarim, it needs to awaken, it needs to arouse us, it needs to make us aware of the power of speech and the greatness of man. We don't only have a world that we navigate and operate in in which Hashem said, this is permissible, this is forbidden, this you can do, this you can't do, but we have the power to transform that world. So take this chair. This chair, according to the rules of Torah, it's permissible. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not hectish. It has not been consecrated to the Beis HaMikdash. There's no status to it that precludes us from using or benefiting it. But what if a person makes a vow and they say, the chair is forbidden to me. We can turn and transform the chair into a piece of chazer schmaltz. You can turn the chair into a piece of pork, a bacon, pig. We have the ability through our words to transform a status and transform the status so it is as binding as if God himself said it. If Hashem says this is not kosher, of course it's not kosher. But we could take something that is entirely kosher. And maybe we would do well to say, this bag of Cape Cod potato chips, hare alai, I take a net, I'm not saying it, bleed net there, bleed net there, just 
for the record, bli neder. But I'm taking a neder, this bag of Cape Cod potato chips, these Trader Joe corn chips, bli neder, just for the sheer. I'm taking a neder that I'll never eat them, I'll never touch them, I'll never benefit. So for the person who says that, the potato chips, the corn chips, they are as forbidden to them as a piece of pork, and pork, as a piece of bacon. That's the power of man. That's the power of speech. And when we read this section, the opening of Parshas Matos, when we engage the halachas of Nadarim, we learn through Mesechas Nadarim, it should awaken us and remind us the power of speech. Power of speech. If you're maktish an animal and you say it's consecrated, it is forbidden as an enormously severe penalty to the prohibition of me'ila. You cannot violate consecrated property. This is a unique power given to the Jewish people. In our mouth is hidden. In our power of speech is embedded in enormous power, an enormous responsibility. And that's why Jewish people, we are called, beginning of Baba Kama, we are called a medaber. We are called a medaber. Targum Unklis translates the Pasuk, what does it mean that we became a living, animated, vibrant being? Zog Targum Unklis, the power of speech is what differentiates us. What makes us different than animals? We don't grunt, we don't bark, we don't meow. We use the power of speech. We articulate thoughtfully, mindfully, strategically. We're present in everything we say. We say what will be helpful and useful and constructive. And we don't say what we shouldn't say, what will be a waste. That's godless Adam. And that's what Salavechik said. You know why we begin the holiest day of the year with what seems to be the most bizarre practice of the year. Yom Kippur. We parade the Torahs to the Bima. The Chazans decked out in white, surrounded on either side. With Chashuvei Ha'ir holding the Torah and leads us with the, with the harrowing tune of... Kol Nidre. I would sing it for you, but even in the three weeks you don't deserve that kind of punishment. The tune of Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre? Holiest day of the year, holiest night of the year. Let's get it started. Let's kick it off. How do we kick it off? You ever read Kol Nidre in English? Try singing the tune of Kol Nidre to the English version of Kol Nidre. And it might just send you right off the derech. It's the strangest thing in the world. All these vows and promises. And Kol Nidre, vows and promises and oaths, whether I meant them, whether I didn't meant them, we start to get into the minutiae and the details and the laws and the intricacies. I, I, I'm bound by it, I'm not bound by it, I said it, I meant it, every formula, however I said it. What are we doing? What are we doing the holiest night of the year? Senator Soloveitchik, you know how we begin Yom Kippur? By saying, my words matter. I'm about to spend 25 hours saying, I'm sorry. I pledge and I promise to be better. I express my regrets and remorse and my remorse and my apology, and I paint a picture and I promise I will be a better version of myself. So you know how we start out? We say, "Well, one second, before you make any promises, before you apologize, before you make any big bold statements, let me remind you: words matter. They change reality. They create nedarim and shavuos that we are as bound by as the laws from Hashem." So really embedded in within the opening of our parsha, says Rav Zedel Epstein, is Godless Adam, is the power and the greatness and the strength that we have with our words. Not only true in the halachas of the Dharam and Shavuos, that we change the status of something from permissible to forbidden, as forbidden as if God said it, but it's also true how we use our words to change the world for the better. 
to build up and to complement and to elevate, or we could use it to destroy. He goes on Ba'arichas, he goes on at length, but he ends by invoking the Pasuk in Mishlei, Shlomo Melch tells us, Mavis v'chayim biyad halashon, death and life are in the hands of the power of speech. Power of speech, you could slander, you could knock down, you could malign, you could criticize, you could complain, or you could compliment and you can build. Mavis v'chayim, death and life are in the hands of the power of speech. What a powerful reminder. And here the parsha then goes on and tells us, and again, we've studied so much of this. We happen to read the same parshios every year. So I'm trying to always introduce new ideas and new angles. But it's so tempting because we said such great stuff that I want to remind myself and you of it. But we're going to see some new angles. So the Torah tells us, do not mundane, profane. Your words, lo yachel dvaro. Isha kisidur nedol Hashem, if a woman takes a vow, her husband has the right to annul it if she's an adult. When she is a child, her father has the right and the ability to annul it. And yet the Torah tells us something very interesting here in Pasuk Vav. If her father, what happens if her father, on the day that he hears she made a vow? So his daughter said, I will never, ever, ever, ever go to the mall again and he knows his daughter that that's an impossible vow for her to keep it'll never ever 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 happen so quickly even though she doesn't know he just overheard it or he sees her whatsapp status and she proudly takes a whole selfie video about her vow i'll never go to the mall again and he sees the whatsapp status and he says "Uh oh i need to save her from herself so what does he do he annuls the vow even without her knowing and then what does she do not an hour later she can't help it. She has to go to the mall. There she is in the mall, shopping, window shopping, actual shopping. And as she's walking through the mall, she's thinking to herself, I blew it. I just posted on my WhatsApp status for the whole world to see that I'll never go in the mall again. And here I am. The sale was just too strong. It lured me in. I can't help it. So her father and all the vow, but she didn't know, says the Torah Hashem Yislach La, she will need to be forgiven. What does that mean, she will need to be forgiven? Hashem Yislach La. Zakhtar Rashi, what does Rashi say on those words? Hashem Yislach La. Pasuk Vav, small Rashi, need the glasses. It's a case where the husband heard about the vow and annulled it before she could violate it. Where the father heard and annulled it before she could violate it. Even though the vow was annulled, she still needs atonement, she still needs to be forgiven, which from a legal standpoint makes no sense. If I were her lawyer, I would have the easiest and most slam dunk case of all time. I'd come to court and I would say, Hashem, let's look at the timeline. Let's go to the videotape. Let's go to the audio recordings. Let's go to the mall security cameras. Let's see what time she made the vow. I annulled the vow before she went to the mall and seemingly violated it. So why does she need atonement or forgiveness? True, she didn't know that. Truth, she thought she was violating it. But so what? Look technically, and the law follows the technical timeline. Technically, I annulled it before she violated it. Why does she need forgiveness? Why does she need, why does she need atonement whatsoever? So, time of the Quran, new safer today. Time of the Quran, another gift from my good friend, Rav Mendi. Time of the Quran is a sefer, maybe the first that Rav Chaim Kanievsky Zatzal published. I believe it was a young man, maybe in his teens, when he published Time of the Quran. And it is an astounding sefer. It goes to the Parsha, several books of Tanakh, Tefillah, Davening, 
And his Mara Makomos, Reb Chaim Kanievsky, at such a young age, was so prodigious, was so brilliant, was such a genius, that even the beginning he writes, he says, I took notes as I learned when it reminded me of other sources, and they've asked me to put it together in a safer, so fine, here it is. And he doesn't even publish originally, his name wasn't even in the, on the title page. So time of the Kerov Chaim Kanievsky, in the year of mourning for the loss of the great Sar HaTorah, this great Gadol B'Torah. So here's one example. Says Rashi, according to Gemara Nazir, here we learn that a person who intended to eat schmaltz, a person who intended to eat pork, bacon, and instead ate a piece of kosher meat, that individual needs atonement. But why? They thought they were, went and bought a piece of bacon. They fried it on the stove. It's crispy and it smells great and it has a great crunch. And as they bite into it, ah, delicious geschmack. Bacon. I've always, I'll have to pay for it later, but I've always wanted to taste it. Delicious. And little do they find later that it turns out the package they took out of the fridge to make this bacon, they, they failed to see the, t- the tiny print that said, kosher bacon. It was from a kosher animal, sliced similarly, and they just prepared it. So, tzarech kapara. Why? It was kosher meat. It was kosher bacon. I know it's an oxymoron, but it was kosher bacon. The Gemara Rashi, our Parsha, says Reb Chaim, should have been formulated differently. Why does the Gemara tell us you intended to eat pork and you ate kosher meat, you need kapara? No, you intended to eat pork even if you ate kosher meat because you had the poor intention, you need kapara atonement for the wrong intention. Why don't we formulate it? In other words, when you get upstairs and God, you say, what are the charges? You say one count of having the wrong intent, one count of wanting to eat pork or bacon. Why is it? and you ate the kosher animal, you're liable, you need a kapara, you ate the kosher animal. Also, I thought that Hashem only credits us when we have the right thought or a positive thought, then Hashem credits us as if we did that thing. But not the inverse. When we have the wrong thought, He doesn't credit us as if we did the wrong thing. So what's going on over here? Says Reb Chaim, that when you eat, something which is prohibited, you're benefiting from the taste. In other words, when you eat something that's prohibited, there are two parts. Number one, you're actually imbibing, you are digesting that which is prohibited. You're not supposed to eat it, it's usr, and you're eating it. But there's another layer or level, which is, you're getting hana'a, there's the pleasure and the benefit of eating that which is forbidden. And why is that? The strongest Yetzirah that a person has is for that which is forbidden to us. We know this phenomenon in modern psychology. It has a name. What is it called? The forbidden fruit syndrome. What is the forbidden fruit syndrome? Oda Marishan was told, enjoy the shmorg. Gan Eden. All you can eat. Whatever you want. Here it is. You see the one tree? Little apples? It wasn't apples. The one thing we know, despite Renaissance art, it was not an apple. It was a date, it was a fig, it was an esrog, it was all kinds of, it was a grape. It was not an, it was not an apple. But you see that one tree, the etadas? Let's just, just stay away. Shmorg. Shmorg. Whatever you want. Eat to your heart's delight. 
delicacies, delicious, whatever. Just don't eat that. The snake, Chava, Adam, what is it all they crave? What is it all they want? By the way, had Hashem not said, you can't eat that thing, they may not have even gotten to the end of the buffet. They may never have even noticed it there. But because Hashem said, you can't have that, what happened? Ooh, that's all I want. That's what Shechter explains. The Gemara Megillah, it says, Haman Torah Minayan, where do we see an allusion or a reference to Haman from the Torah? Hamin Ha'etz Hadas, when God challenges, Hamin Ha'etz, did you eat from the tree? Hamin, Haman are the same letters, just change the vowels. But it's more than a cute play on words, Hamin and Haman. It was the exact same phenomenon. Haman had every person in Shushan bowing down to him, except for one. So Haman, don't sabotage your own success, your position, your career. Just don't pay attention. So you don't have the one. So the lowly Jew, Mordechai, is not bowing down. But everybody else is bowing down. You have everything and everyone. Why are you only focused on the one thing you can't have? Where is that phenomenon from? Haman, Hamin Ha'itz. It's the same phenomenon. So it says Rechaim Kanievsky that when we eat something prohibited, not only are we enjoying the mamashas, the food that actually we're eating, what else are we getting benefit or pleasure from? Ah, I wasn't supposed to be allowed to have that. That's what I crave more than anything. I'm enjoying that which is forbidden. I'm enjoying that which is forbidden. So that's what Rechaim says. When you thought you were eating the wrong thing, you got a gishmak, you got a pleasure, you got a joy, you got a hana'a, the forbidden fruit. Okay, you know, in my mind, this cognitive dissonance, I'll have to pay for it later, here's why I justify it, rationalize it, here's why it's okay, but there's a pleasure. That which is specifically forbidden, that which is specifically supposed to be out of reach, there's a pleasure. So that's what you need the kapara for. It turns out what you ate was kosher bacon. Turns out what you ate, there was nothing wrong. But the pleasure you got when you thought you were eating real bacon, the joy, the rebelliousness of the joy, or being above the rules, or having that which you thought you couldn't have, that was it. We specifically have this urge, this yearning. We want to rebel and have that which is out of bounds, that which is off limits, that which we can't have. People like to do that which is forbidden against the rules. And that's why the Gemara Baba Kama says, Who gets more reward? The one who's obligated or the one who volunteers? I would have thought, who gets more reward? The volunteer. Volunteer is not obligated but shows up anyway. Who does it anyway? So women are exempt from time-bound mitzvahs. When they volunteer, who gets more reward? The men who are obligated or a woman who's exempt? If a man is exempt from a particular mitzvah and he nevertheless volunteers, who gets more reward? The one who's obligated or the one who's exempt? I would have said the one who's exempt. Does it anyway. Who volunteers? But that's not the case. Why? Because once you're commanded, now kicks in this urge, this instinct to do the opposite. When you weren't commanded, you don't have to overcome a Yetzirah to do it. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The very fact that you're driven, this is the Ritva's understanding in the Gemara Baba Kama. The very fact that you are internally driven to volunteer to do it makes it so much easier for you. You don't deserve a reward because the reward is satisfying the internal urge to do the right thing. 
But the person who says, I don't want to do it. I have no interest in doing it. I don't feel like doing it. And I'm overcoming and fighting and confronting and battling, in fact, the enormous urge not to do it. You know why? Because you told me to do it. And because you told me to do it, now I don't want to do it. So they get a bigger reward. The one who's commanded has to overcome the natural instinct to not do what you're told to do. The one who is not commanded or told to do it has no natural urge that they have to overcome. So that's what's going on over here. Beautiful insight of Chaim Kanievsky, Taima Dikra. Namely, why Vashem Yislachla? Why do you need Kapara? Because you took a vow not to go to the mall. You took a vow not to eat the potato chips. So it's true that you could get off on a technicality. They're going to go represent you in court. You don't need the greatest lawyers to prove that based on the timeline you were already annulled. But it doesn't matter. When you did it, you got the Geschmack of Merida, of rebelliousness. You got the Geschmack of going against the rules. You got the Geschmack, that pleasure, that joy of thinking that it doesn't apply to you. For that, Hashem Yislach La, that itself needs Kapara. Perak Lamed Aleph. After we move on from the Durham. By the Bershem Moshele Mor, Perak Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Aleph and Beis. In the Komnik Maz B'nei Yisrael. It's time to get even. It's time. Well, who was it who said, I don't get angry, I get even? Hashem, they took that line from Parshas Matos. Hashem says, I don't get angry, I get even. Hashem tells Moshe, it's time for revenge. Take the revenge of the Jewish people against Midian, and afterwards we'll be gathered onto the people. I got something for you to do before you go anywhere. Before you are retired, before you leave this world, before you exit stage left, we've got something to take care of. We've got some scores to settle. We've got to take care of some things. It's not Hashem's wedding day, but he is a child's wedding day, but he nevertheless takes care of all the people that he wants to eliminate. And the top of that list is Midian. Midian. What did Midian do? We all know from last week's Parsha, two weeks ago's Parsha. Midian seductively sent their women. What Bilam failed to do with his mouth, the women were able to do with their provocation, with their seduction, their temptation. They got the men to worship Baal Peor. The men violated that ethical boundary of promiscuity. Midian attacked. Midian took us down. 24,000 people died. 24,000 people died because we couldn't keep it together. So God says, ready? It's time for revenge. Mikom Nikmas. Mikom Nikmas. Now there's a lot to talk about here. We've spoken about some of it in the past. We'll revisit some of it now. Why is it called Nikmas? B'nai Yisrael. Hashem says to Moshe, go avenge the vengeance of whom? The Jewish people. We're not going to get into it right now. I'll pose it to you as a question because it's interesting to think about. Generally, are we allowed to take revenge? We have a Torah prohibition. One of the 613, one of the Taryag is losikom velositor, two prohibitions. Losikom velositor, you may not take revenge. There are two types of revenge. Losikom velositor, the Torah tells us both. One of them is, this is what the Gemara gives us, the classic example. What happens? I went to go borrow your lawnmower and you said, absolutely not. I don't trust you. This is a high-tech lawnmower. There's no way, so sorry, you can't borrow it. Then you come over to borrow my mixer, my bread maker. I say, so losikom is, I say, no, you didn't let me borrow your lawnmower. You can't borrow my bread maker. That's revenge. The Jew is told you can't take revenge. Lositor is... You know, by all means, please help yourself to my bread maker because I'm not like you. You didn't let me borrow the lawnmower, but I'm so much better. I would never behave that way. I'd never stoop to that level. 
So by all means, enjoy the bread maker. That's Los Sitor, with that voice and that tone. That's Los Sitor. So Torah has two prohibitions, Los Sikom and Los Sitor. So how could it be that Hashem enjoins us, you're not allowed to take revenge, and here, Nekom Nikmas Bnei Yisrael, here Hashem says to Moshe, you ready? It's time to get even. We don't get angry, we get even. I thought we don't get even. I thought we have a prohibition of getting even. You could ask that in Avarachamim. We say Avarachamim every Shabbos and we invoke Nikom Nikmas. We invoke this call. Avarachamim is the prayer for the martyrs, particularly of the Crusades, but really to all the martyr, martyrs of Jewish history. Every Shabbos morning we interrupt our beautiful davening. People don't appreciate We essentially recite a Kelmalei. We recite a memorial prayer every Shabbos morning and say, Hashem, as we are enjoying Shabbos, do us a favor, get even with all those through our history who have murdered and pillaged and raped and oppressed and persecuted and exterminated. Get even with all of them. That's Avaracham. Master of compassion, don't show compassion. Get even. Take care of our enemies. Payback time. What happened to Losikom Lositor? I thought we don't take revenge. That's the question we're not going to talk about right now. But what we will talk about is Nikom Nikmas Bnei Yisrael. Why is it called the revenge of the Jewish people? Shenen Shu Ayadam Osam Beshitim. So Rableb Chasman, who was the Avbezdan of Shtutzin, and uh, who was uh, in Chevron, Yeshiva, he says, Hamachti es Chavero Mevachitin es Adina Mashagarm lo Lachto, Yikabagam Onesh Akach, Shahala Neenash, Shahu Goram lo Kach. Why is it the revenge of the Jewish people? It should be the revenge of God that the Midianites violated Hashem. And the answer is, the Jews had made a mistake. They gave in to the temptation. But because Midian tempted them, they caused it, therefore they are responsible not only for what they did to Hashem, but they're responsible for what they got the Jewish people to do to Hashem. They bear both. But the opposite's also true. That when a person through their behavior not only does the right thing for themselves but inspires and motivates and is a model and encourages others, they get that other person's reward in addition to their own. It works both ways. That's why it says, it's called Nikmas B'nai Yisrael, because Midian, not only do you have to pay for what you did, you have to pay for what you caused the Jewish people to do as well. The altar of Kelma is another interpretation. And Moshe says the opposite. He's bothered by another anomaly. Here it's called Nikmas B'nai Yisrael to avenge the vengeance of Bnei Yisrael. But momentarily, Moshe is going to call it Nikom Nikmas, Maseis Nikmas Hashem B'Midyan, in Pasuk Gimel. If you just read a little bit further, Moshe calls it Nikmas Bnei Yisrael. So which is it? Is it Nikmas, I'm sorry, Nikmas Hashem? Is it the revenge for the Bnei Yisrael? Or is it the revenge for Hashem? Which is it? Says the altar of Kelm. Says the altar of Kelm. It's a Moshe. Nikmas Bnei Yisrael. He Nikmas Hashem. He Tova So Kiviyachol. Mavurim Kain Shem Meitivim Yisrael. Meitivim Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Vaoiv Yisrael. Zeavas Hakadosh Baruch Hu. What the Torah is communicating to us here very subtly is that the Jewish people and Hashem we are synonymous and we are one. You can't be cruel or mean. I've said this so many times. If you're cruel and mean to my children. You're cruel and mean to me. A person can't be unkind to my child and then come to me as if we're best friends. And when I say, one second, hello, you just, the way you just reacted or spoke to or treated my child, 
we're not good. And they say, well, what do you mean? That's your child. What does that have to do with the relationship I have with you? And the obvious answer is, no, no, no. My child is me. My child is an extension of me. The way you treat your ch- my child is the way you're treating me. And the way you treat me is the way you're treating my children. If you're cruel or mean or unkind to me, you're not going to go to a ball game with my child. My child's going to say, How, you treat my parent that way? We're not good. We're synonymous. We're intertwined. We're one. And so says the author of Kelm, that's what the Torah is communicating to us. It is simultaneous with both Nikmas B'nai Yisrael and Nikmas Hashem. Because the way you treat us, we are agents and ambassadors. We are the children. We are the firstborn children, B'nai B'chor Yisrael, of Hashem. Of Hashem. When you treat the Jewish people well, you're treating God well. And when you mistreat the Jewish people, you are mistreating God. It is all one and we are all intertwined. Rabbi Nachman is a very similar teaching and very powerful teaching and a very appropriate teaching during these three weeks as we're grieving and mourning and longing for the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. And again, this beautiful Sefer, which is not Rabbi Nachman on the Parsha, specifically the teachings on the Parsha based on Rabbi Nachman. And he says the following, again, he notes the contradiction. Nikmas B'nai Yisrael, la says Nikmas Hashem B'midyan. Which is it? Ha'im Zoe Nikmas B'nai Yisrael, Nikmas Hashem. Who is this revenge on behalf of? Which is true. Efshir l'mod mikach, at kamachamor chatam shal ovi Yisrael, sheyotzal l'macham and nikmito. So you have to know Hamas and Hezbollah. You have to know Nazis and Inquisitors. You have to know anyone who's ever attacked us, our enemies. You thought you were taking out human Jews who you thought were lowly filth. You were actually taking on God himself. When you take on the Jewish people, you're taking on God. Is that arrogant and egotistical of us? We don't really care. If you take on us, you're taking on God. We bear that responsibility. On the other end, you've got seven mitzvahs. We've got 613. The entire world has and always will judge us on a higher standard, so you're judged at a higher standard if you take us on. If you take on the Jewish people, you are taking on God. Yodim Divri Reb Nachman, Likutei Mu'aran. And he says something very powerful here. You ready? Very powerful. Shalomaisem Yotzim Mekach Neger HaKadosh Baruch Hu Ba'atzma Avagam Anachnu Tzrichim Lizar Shalolipo Bechet Doma Lezeh. Says Reb Nachman, you know, it's easy for us to say, we're family, so we mistreat one another. It's you, the outsider, that's who we'll stand up against. That's what we won't tolerate. That's what we'll confront and reject and push away. We're entitled to mistreat one another. We're family. But you, you don't have that license. You don't have that right. Says Rabbi Nachman, that's all wrong. The same principle that we've just learned, that the Torah is subtly teaching us here, Nikmas B'nai Israel equals and equates to Nikmas Hashem. If you mistreat a Jew, you're mistreating God. That's not only true externally from our enemies outside, that's also true the way we treat one another. Reb Nachman writes in Likutei Meran Chelek Aleph, Semen Reish Pei Beis, Tzarech L'Adon is kola adam l'kafzchos, afilu mishu rasha gomer tzarech l'chapes v'lumtza bo eizem ma'at tov. On Shabbat Sabbat Tamas, I spoke about this. I spoke about going from hypercriticism to hypercompliments. I actually had this source, but didn't get to it. Story of my life. Reb Nachman writes in Likutei Meran that you need to judge others favorably. How? Why should I judge that Russia Marusha? Why should I judge that wicked, evil, icefarf, reject, obnoxious person positively? Haven't they forfeited and lost my benefit of the doubt in them? Why should I judge them favorably? Aren't I entitled and aren't I correct and accurate to judge them exactly the way I am? Aren't they a Russia Marusha? What's the answer? Says Rav Nachman. Afilu mishu Russia gamar tzarech l'chapes v'lumtza bo'ezim 
No, the burden's on you. If you would take the time, if you'd investigate and analyze, if you'd plumb the depths of the other person, you would find something redeemable in them. Even the people who are on the surface, even the people who beyond the surface seem irredeemable. And there are people like that. After the three weeks, I'll give you the list. I'm just joking. There are people like that. They're so irredeemable. There's nothing likable, attractive, admirable about them. Even those people, there's something inside. If we get to know them, if we learn about them, if we understand them, if we engage them, we'll find something in them. Because of Akach Rav Nassim, Rav Nassim, the student of Rav Nachman, writes in the Kutei Halachos, Hashkamas Aboker, Hatov Hazesh Motzim Eitzel Kol Yehudi Zinu Kudat Kish Yishbo, Kemoshekasuv Tov Hashem Lakol. We say in our davening in Ashrei Tov Hashem Lakol, Kikol Atov Shenimtze Bechol Makom Shehu Unitzutz Mituvu Agadol Shel Hashem. Tov Hashem Lakol. Hashem puts a Tov in everyone. In everyone, there's a spark of goodness. In everyone, there's something redeemable. In everyone, there's something you can connect with and attach to and find admirable. Tov Hashem, Lakol. Hashem gives a tov, he points and he plants something good in everyone. So Every Jew is walking around with a piece of God literally inside them. So when you have a conflict with a fellow Jew, when you malign them, when you speak negatively, when you slander them, when you mistreat them, when you're having a machlok as a conflict with them, when you marginalize them, when you stereotype them, when you fail to give them the benefit of the doubt or cut them slack, you know who you're taking on? Do you know who you're slandering? Do you know who you're marginalizing? The Almighty Himself. Because that Jew is a unique expression of Hashem in this world. Now, again, it may be difficult to see it, but that's our burden. And that's our responsibility to find it. And when we marginalize or slander, or when we are cruel or unkind to that Yid, to that Jew, we are mistreating, we are maligning, we are neglecting Hashem Himself. Hashem Himself. Stay far away from conflict. Stay away from machlokas. That Shabbos table, that conversation over text message, that, that WhatsApp group, where they're speaking negatively about an institution, a leader, a person, a member of the family, get out, stay away, stay far away, far away. You know why? Because Hashem takes revenge. Because when you marginalize or complain or hyper-criticize a Jew, that's how you're treating Hashem. Nikmas B'nai Yisrael is Nikmas Hashem. And when Hashem will avenge them and right the wrong and stand up for the justice of the person who's been mistreated, you don't want to be anywhere near that. You know why? Hashem is not just doing it for that Jew. He's doing it for himself. Nikmas B'nai Yisrael is Nikmas Hashem. They are intertwined and they go together. And that's why, and that's why, says the altar of Kelm, that's why, says Rab Nachman, that's why they're interchangeable. Nikmas Hashem, Nikmas B'nai Yisrael. Nikmas B'nai Yisrael, Nikmas Hashem. We are an extension of Him. And that is why they go to, that is why they go together. Um, ba, 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 ba. Okay, I'll tell you one more thing on this. Nikmas Hashem. Only because you pressured me to. The Balayatos will say the following. Moshe, after you will be collected to your people, first we've got business to do. The Balayatos is right on this. 
Hashem tasked Moshe himself, go and avenge, go and take revenge for what happened. And Moshe says, I'll take responsibility, but I'm, some, I'm sending somebody else. I'm delegating this one out. Why did he delegate this one out? Hashem asked you to do something. That's, that's a great honor. It's a great privilege. Why would you delegate it out? Said Moshe, I can't do it myself. Why not? Listen, God, if it needs to be done, you said it needs to be done, I'll get it done. But I can't do it. Why not? I grew up in Midian. I was raised in Midian. I went to those Midianite restaurants. I shopped in the Midianite stores. I saw the Midianite doctors. I grew up in Midian. Those are my people. I, I can't. What is the word evgod? Beis Gimel Dalet is rebel. I can't rebel against them, given what they did for me. So I'll get it done, Hashem, because you said it needs to get done. And we have a saying. The well that you drink from, don't throw dirt in. Don't throw dirt in the well that you drink from. Don't throw dirt in the well that you drink from. I drank from the Midian well. That's where I grew. That's where I matured. So how can I be the one who takes revenge and who wipes them out? Says Rav Simcha Zitzel Broid, the Rosh Hashib of Chevron. Evgod, rebelliousness? God says do it, and you're worried about rebelling against the Midianites? The same provocateurs, the same Midianites who brought down 24,000 Jews who caused a pandemic, epidemic, a plague of 24,000, and you're worried about rebelling against them? rather than the word of God, Hashem says, go do it. You say, I'll get it done, but I can't do it. I can't rebel against them. What's going on over here? Says Rasim Chazis Albroid, an incredibly beautiful and powerful insight. He says, you see, Hakaras Hatov. You see the power and the responsibility of the notion of gratitude. To be grateful even to those who turn on you. Midianite now, kind and uncruel in what they caused, but the role they once played, I can't rebel against the principle of gratitude. It's not Midian per se that Moshe refuses to rebel against. It is the principle of gratitude. Throughout our lives, we have to always be conscious, conscious of the good that people have done. And even if that changed, and even if they turned, and even if we then later suffered, we have to remain loyal to the principle of gratitude, to remember what people have done. To be ungrateful, says Moshe Rabbeinu, is begida, is rebelliousness. And he wants no part of it. So on the one hand, Hashem says it needs to be done. He'll get it done. If Hashem says it's got to get done, it's got to get done. But on the other hand, he says, I can't do it. Why can't I do it? I benefited from Midian. That would violate the principle of Akar Satov. And we know we have so many examples. It's also why Moshe didn't do the first two plagues. Even though there it was an inanimate object. Moshe says, I can't strike the Nile. Why? The Nile saved my life. I floated in the Nile. That's how I was saved. You say, uh, Moshe, I don't know if you know, facts don't have feelings and the Nile doesn't have feelings. So what are you worried about hurting the Nile over here? So you missed the point because gratitude is not about the recipient of the gratitude. Why is gratitude critical and important? Why is it crucial? For the one who gives the gratitude. We need to stay humble. Gratitude is an exercise in humility. Arrogant people can't express gratitude. That's the famous Rafutner, Modele, Modeal. The same word in Hebrew, hoda'a, moda, means grateful and admission. Every statement of gratitude is an admission, I needed you, I benefited from you. Nobody can make that admission if they're arrogant. So gratitude is an exercise in humility. So we are grateful for us, not for the person. 
You say they don't deserve it. So, well, I'm not, I'm not saying thank you because they deserve it. I'm saying thank you because I need to experience that exercise in humility to say thank you. That was Moshe with the Nile and it's Moshe now with Midian and it's Moshe in his whole life. Moshe, who's the Av Hanaviyim. Moshe, who is categorically different than any other human being in all of history. That Moshe is the Moshe, the Av Hanaviyim, that we need to, that we need to learn from to, uh, to forever be grateful and to never take anything for granted in our, in our lives. Vayiktsav Moshe, Perek Laman Aleph, Pasuk Yud Dalaf, Yud Dalad. Moshe, what happens? Moshe, Elazar, and the leaders all go out to meet them outside the camp. And here Moshe gets frustrated and rebukes the officers of the Jewish people. What happened? Why is he rebuking? Moshe was angry with the commanders. He's angry at them. And he says, did you let the females live? They're the ones who brought us down. How could you show compassion? This was misappropriate compassion. You did it the wrong way. So Moshe Rabbeinu is rebuking them. A few things to say on this Pasuk. Just cleaning up the YouTube. There we go. Someone inappropriately is bombing us still on YouTube. Hate crime. Okay, first is the altar of Slabodka. says the following. Altar of Slabodka. Sorry. Yeah. Gemara Psachim learns from your Kalakoes Moshe got angry. The word Vayiktsof, Moshe got angry. Is this the first time we see Moshe get angry? Where else did we see it? According to the Rambam, we saw 24 different explanations, but according to the Rambam, Moshe's failure, Memoriva, when he hit the rock, was anger. He indulged that, that response of anger. Got angry at the people, and here again, Vayitzov Moshe, and the Gemara Psachem and Vav tells us, we learn from your Kolakois. If you get angry, you lose your wisdom. You lose your wisdom. So, what do you see from here? Moshe's anger here is it misplaced or is it correct? Ask the author of Slabatka. This is an appropriate anger. They were sent out for a mission, for a task, and they came back and it was incomplete. They misapplied their compassion and they let part of Midian live, particularly those who in fact were the most responsible. Moshe is right and he's just to get frustrated and to get angry. So why is he criticized? Not only was Moshe right to get angry, he did something noble. It's almost a mitzvah he fulfilled. Ella. What do you see from here, says the author of Slabatka? If God could be disappointed, and if Moshe was caused to lose his chachma as a result, it means even though it was a noble and justified anger, mixed in and laced into that anger was a personal anger, was an anger that was unnecessary, was extra anger. And what is the result of personal anger? You lose your chachma. You know why? Because when you get angry, this is what we spoke about on Shabbos afternoon several weeks ago. That parsha, parsha Moshe's anger. When you get angry, you lose your judgment. When you get angry, you lose your humanity. Person who's angry, the blood flows from the unique part, human part of the brain, cortex, to the animal fight or flight part of the brain. We lose our humanity. You literally become an animal. You become an animal. So Moshe Rabbeinu clearly laced into this reaction, not only a noble and just demonstration of anger, 
but there was actual emotion of anger. And look at how negative, look at how dangerous and damaging it is that that one can lose even their wisdom as a result. That is just how, how dangerous and how terrible it is. Zalman Sarotskin asks, why does it have Moshe's name twice in the Pasuk? Why is Moshe's name here twice in the, in the Pasuk? So in his Oznayim Torah, Zalman Sarotskin says the following. He says, Moshe's name is used twice to indicate that he paused between getting angry and speaking, between his immediate reaction of anger and speaking. If he spoke to them from anger, it would have said what? What's the harsher word for speaking? We have several words for speaking. Amira, Hagada, Dibur, Sipur. We have many words, and they reflect where it's coming from. Amira is a soft tone, is a Lashon Raka. Amira, gentle, soft, sweet. Dibur, stern. Dibur is angry. Dibur is strong. But it says, Vayomer. Doesn't says Vayidaber. Why? Somehow, in between Vayiktsof Moshe and Vayomer Moshe, he was able to gather himself. He was able to calm himself down. So says Rav Zaman Tzeratzkin, how did he get from being angry to speaking gently? How did he go from this reaction of Vayiktsof, frustrated, angry, disappointed, to Vayomer, communicated softly, effectively? How did he get from there to there? You know what the answer is? Vayiktsof Moshe, Vayomer Moshe. There was a pause in between. There was a break. We don't always have to react immediately based on how we feel. We're able to regulate our feeling. And we're able to gather ourselves. And we're able to focus. And we're able to regain control. He paused and he spent some time in silence before he reacted. We rarely pause and experience silence. Not only in our conversations with others, but in our conversations with ourselves. We have a feeling and we indulge that feeling. We have a reaction and we indulge that reaction. Instead of pausing and saying, let me analyze, let me think about, let me consider, let me have a conversation with myself. Vayiktsof Moshe, Vayomer Moshe. Why is his name twice? Because there was a break. There was a silence, there was a pause. We read it in succession as if it all happened simultaneously. But the reason his name is twice is because there was a pause. And that pause is the secret, it is the formula to how he went from Vayiktsov to Vayomer. How do you go from anger? And how important is this in our relationships, in our marriage and with our children and at work? Just because our blood pressure is rising and our, our pulse is speeding up and our sweat glands are pumping out and we're really angry. Okay, don't shoot off that email. Don't write that text. Don't burst into that room. Don't let them have it. Go from Vayiktsov, take that pregnant pause, take that time, and make sure you can get to a place of Vayomer. Rebeliezer Papa in his Pelayoids writes that silence is to anger as water is to fire. Silence is to anger as water is to fire. Water extinguishes fire. Water puts out fire. Look at what's happening in California. I saw last night, there was a fire because of a lawnmower or a washing machine, I forgot what, and 24 houses burnt down because of the heat. And now it's neighborhoods that are being ravaged by fire. It starts as a little spark in a lawnmower. A little spark in the lawnmower 
24 homes. One person's house burns down, the whole community is turned over by what happened. 24 houses is a neighborhood being burnt down. How does that happen? Because that little spark, so dangerous, spreads so fast, consumes everything in its way, in its path. And the same is true with anger. So how do you stop that fire? Water. Water puts out fire. And says the Peleo, it's silence is to anger what water is to fire. Silence can extinguish. It can diminish the flames. It can control the rage, the fire. So not only does it not consume others, it doesn't consume, it doesn't consume ourselves. So Chazal said, Rav Dimi came from Eretz Yisrael, he came to Babel, he said, in the West, in Eretz Yisrael, they say, they have an adage, if a word is worth a selah, silence is worth two. Silence is much more precious, more valuable than speech. But we, we go right to speaking, yelling, texting, emailing, in times and in moments when we should be silent. Revolba writes that we teach a child to speak. They say their first word. So excited, yay, candy, toy, ice cream. You said your first word. Hopefully it's Zayda, yay, yay. But you know what we never teach them? To stop talking. We never teach them, you were silent, yay. That's the teenagers who make their presence known. They should just listen, but all of a sudden they interject. If they're sitting there quietly, they should say, yay, go to the mall, yay. We teach them to speak and we celebrate it, but do we teach them and are we celebrating also the power and the value of silence, of silence. We think we have to fill every moment with speech, but silence is the real reflection of a relationship. But silence is also how we can control and regulate our emotions and our angers. Gemara Chulun says, The world stands in the merit of those who are silent in a moment of dispute. Someone posted about you. Someone hung a poster about you. Someone screamed at you. Someone attacked you. Someone embarrassed you. You just stand silent. You stand quietly. Quiet. Don't respond. Don't match. Don't elevate or increase. Silent. Vayiktsov to vayomer. Don't lose yourself. Don't forfeit your humanity. We learn more from being silent than from speaking. The power of silence here is far greater than the power of, of speaking. And, and what we get in return the bracha that comes to a person who could be attacked, who could be yelled at, who has every right to be angry and isn't, the bracha such a person gets, wow, wow. You know where we learn that silence from? Hashem. Micha mocha. We just spoke about it in Siddur Snippets before the Amida. We just began the Amida. Never too late to catch up on Siddur Snippets. Micha mocha bo'ilim Hashem. The Gemara learns, Micha mocha bi'ilmim Hashem. Not how is great, how strong are you, God? You could wipe out Titus Arasha. You could wipe out the Romans. You could wipe out any, our enemies. You're not so strong and great because of what you do that's vocal. You know why you're so great, God? Because you're silent. When you're quiet and you don't react, that is a greater show of strength than reacting. Who's stronger? The one in the fight who screams and yells and makes a whole scene? Or the one who has the inner strength to stay quiet? To stay quiet. That is a greater sign of strength. That is a greater sign of strength. Perak Lamed Alf, Pasach Afalf. We have to get to Tamase. We're running out of time. So what should we do here? Perak Lamed Alf, Pasach Chafalaf. Vayomer Elazar Koin Alan Shehatzav Abayim L'Macham Azoz Chukas HaTar Shehatziv HaShem Es Moshe. Ooh, a great Kutzker. Because what's the Pasha class without a great Kutzker?
says the following. Three katskas, all the same theme. We'll go through them quickly. Elazar HaKohen speaks to the, those who came back from war, and he gives them a message. The division of the spoils, and now we're going to get to the laws of kashering utensils. Because when they came back from war, so everybody knows when you come back from a trip, you've got to bring your wife a gift. So what did they bring their wives as gifts? They, they uh, took all the spoils from the kitchen of Midian. They conquered Midian, they went to the kitchen, they said the bread maker and the spatula and the frying pan and the George Foreman grill and the... But what do you do? You gotta kosher it. The Midianites did not keep kosher. So here's where the Torah tells us the laws of koshering. Here's how you kosher different utensils. So Elazar Cohen is speaking to these men and they're coming back, Habaim, what should it say? They're coming, what? From war. They're on their way back from battling Midian. What does it say? Habaim? Lemilchama to war. It's wrong. It should be they're coming from war. L'chorah yitzarach hakasav lamar habaim meha milchama benira kibo at lemachama chadasha says the Katzker. You know why it says they're coming to war? Because they're coming to a harder, more difficult war. And what is it? Sha'ach shav nemra and parshas guule midyan. Hashem is going to say the utensils they need to be kashered. And you know what the Jewish people are going to answer? Why do they need to be kashered? They're cleaned. Look at them. Sparkling, spick and span, clean, shine to them. They're perfectly clean. Why do I still have to put them in boiling water? Or why do I still pass them through a fire, blowtorch them? Look at it, it's perfectly clean. And what's the answer? Why does it need to be kashered? Because we have a principle. What's the principle? Tam ki'ikr. Tam ki'ikr means that the absorbed taste is as potent and powerful as that which it absorbed the taste from. So when you cooked, when the Midianites, when they boiled up a, a pork roast in the pot, even when you clean that pot and it looks sparkling clean, in the walls of the pot are embedded the taste of the pork roast. And you need to purge it of the taste. Kabolo kachpolto. How do we purge a taste that was absorbed? Through the same way it was absorbed. If it was absorbed with water, it's purged with water. If it was absorbed with heat, it's purged with heat. If it was absorbed with steam, it's purged with steam. I'm giving you hives right now because it sounds like the Pesach workshop, kasher in the kitchen. But you get out the taste the same way it came in. Liquid, heat, steam, and so on. Says the Kotzker, oh, geschmack Kotzker. Says the Kotzker, why are they described as coming to war, not coming back from war? Because the war they're about to wage is much harder than the war that they just won. The war they won was a physical war. The war they won was against the Midianite people. But now they've got to wage an even harder war. Who is this war with? Themselves. And what's the war they're waging with themselves? Just like the pot has absorbed the non-kosher taste, you've absorbed the non-kosher ideas and ideals of Midian. What have we absorbed? What's in our heart and in our mind? What non-kosher tastes have we absorbed? And how do we get them out? They're coming back to war, not from war. Why? Because just like the laws of how to kasher a utensil, they're about to enter and wage the war, how to kasher their brain and their heart. How do we kasher ourselves? How do we The Ruach Chaim, Ruach Chaim Velashna writes this in Pirkei Avos. Pirkei Avos, it says, 48 ways the Torah is acquired, Torah machsharto, Torah kashers a person. The Ruach HaChaim, the Ruach HaChaim wonders, what does it mean Torah kashers a person? The answer is, the same way that we use boiling water or heat 
in order to remove the taste that was absorbed. We need the study of Torah is what purges the non-kosher tastes, the non-kosher ideas and images that we have absorbed. When we live our lives and we engage the world, we absorb non-kosher tastes and images and ideas. How do we get them out? It's through the study of Torah. The Nesiva Shalom, the Salon Rebbe, by the way, writes, he says, Hatshuva sharak ta'aviru ba'ish kemo ken yashiv melchama menegdo ke'ish az ish ochla ish ish ha'kedusha ochelis ish ha'yitzahara The same way that if fire is the way you absorb taste, you need fire to get it out. If you pursued the non-kosher taste that you've absorbed with fire, you need to become on fire to get it out. If you had a passion in your pursuit of the non-kosher experience of life, if you were on fire in the pursuit of that non-kosher idea, then you need to match it, to purge it, to equally be on fire, to get rid of it. It goes together. He continues to Kotzker. Why weren't we given these laws after we won the battle with Sichon Va'og? And undoubtedly there too, we had to come back from the war with a gift for our wives. So we brought the bed, bread maker and the George Foreman. The answer is, because when we fought Sichon Va'og, we weren't exposed to and we didn't absorb those non-kosher ideas. So we were able to not need the laws then. But here, when the Torah is telling us the laws of Hagal's Caleb, it's not just telling us about the Caleb utensils, it's really telling us about ourselves, how to remove it for ourselves. Because even after the plague, and even after we were done, we continued to fantasize and think about and pursue and hold on to, and hold on to the, the Midian. I'm reminded of a story that's told. It's told about a monk, you could tell it about a rabbi. There was a woman who was stuck, a woman who was drowning, and therefore they went in to save her and lifted her on their shoulders to carry her across the river. And two hours later, the young boy who was walking with the monk, the rabbi, whatever version of the story you prefer, says, I don't understand how you, she was beautiful and she was magnificent and she was attractive. And how is it you were allowed to lift her and to carry her? And, and didn't that create a connection to her? And the monk or the rabbi turned to the young man and he said, I put her down two hours ago. You're still carrying her around. I lifted her across the river, but I put her down two hours ago. You're still carrying her with you. So they were still carrying the Benos Midian with them. True, it was over, and the plague was over, and the war was over, but they're still Hirhura Veira. They're still walking around holding on to nostalgically that experience and the fantasy of it. And therefore, they needed to purge themselves. They need to kasha themselves of it. How do they kasha themselves with it? Torah kasher is the same way this, and that's why we have the laws of kashering here. Oh, yeah, 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 I had so much more, but let's go to Masay for two minutes. Because we read Masay, we can't disrespect Masay. Perek Lama Gimel, Pasuches, Parshas Masay. Vayisumit mechiros vayivru b'sochayim ha'mibara, vayachu derech shloshet ha'mibara, esam vayachanu b'mara. Actually, I start from the beginning. Lama Gimel, Aleph. Ela Masay b'nei Yisrael, these are the Masay b'nei Yisrael. Ela Masay B'nai Yisrael. Torah is telling us about the Masay B'nai Yisrael. This is really the most important thing you have to know about Mas. We didn't get into B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain, who didn't go into Israel, who they learned that from. Oh, so much we didn't get into. Oh. Okay, so Ela Masay, how does it begin? So the Ramban, in the name of the Rambam, the Ramban here in this Pasuk writes, Kosov HaRab Mar Nevuchim, HaTzorach L'Haskar HaMasim Godol Ma'od. Ela Masay is a very not fun parsha. 
These are the trips, these are the travels of the Jewish people, back and forth and back and forth, and they left here and they came here and they came here and they left here, and back and forth, and we have a whole tune in the Nikon just to get us through it. What do we care? So long? You know? It's like, you know, I don't know, somebody came to see you, children or children, grandchildren came up to visit you, and they're like, I got in the car and I drove in, then we stopped at the gas station, then we stayed overnight. Then we, yeah, you're here, hi, let's just enjoy each other's company. I don't need to know about every bathroom stop that you took. Okay, it took you 22 hours, and can you believe it, in the flight, and that? I got it, okay, I got it. It was miserable, it was difficult, traveling today is horrible. My children's flight that was supposed to get in last night at 7 p.m., I think we got home at 2 a.m. after they landed last night. Yeah, to, traveling today is miserable. I got it. I don't need to know about every little, okay, and then, uh, and then uh, blue chips, and then the thing, and then, okay, I got it. Why do we need to have it here in the Torah? Why are we elaborating so much? The Ramban quotes the Rambam that you know why we go into gory detail here? Because in the future nobody would believe it. 40 years, 42 stops. What did you live off of? What did you subsist on? How did you survive the desert? There was a well. There were clouds. There was food that fell from heaven. There was clothing that you didn't get out of. Nobody's going to believe it. So you know what we need to do? We need to record it. We need to record the family narrative. We need to tell the story. Tomorrow night we have him behind the beam of Dan Grunfeld. Dan Grunfeld just wrote a book by the grace of the game about his father, Ernie Grunfeld. Ernie Grunfeld, Ernie Grunfeld was born in Satmar, Romania. Didn't speak English till he came here. He was eight years old and uh, ended up being an all-star with the New York Knicks, a coach of the Knicks, an executive of the Knicks, a radio broadcaster. You've heard of Ernie Grunfeld, no? Am I giving this shit to a bunch of boors? You've heard of Ernie Grunfeld? So it's amazing because you, you don't know that he wore the number 18 for Chai or that when Ernie Grunfeld was a little boy growing up in Satmar, he got a bracha from Biel Teidelbaum, the Satmar Rebbe, and that Ernie Grunfeld's mother, after surviving because of Raoul Wallenberg, had a relationship still with the Satmar Rebbe in New York. Wild, Ernie Grunfeld. So Dan Grunfeld's tomorrow night on Behind the Bima. He took the story, it's three parts. His grandmother survived, his father, what he became, and who he was, Dan Grunfeld, he has his own fascinating story, and that's the book. So we'll talk to him about why it's important to know and to record your family narrative. Why do you have to know all 42 steps of your journey? Okay, you're here now. Who cares how you got here? Who cares what your parents went through, your grandparents went through? Who cares about your own life? The bottom line is today. Where are you today and how are you living today? Why does what comes before matters? Why is it important? And the Ramam says it matters because no one would believe it and you need to know and you need to be able to trace and see the hand of Hashem in how you got here today. You need to be able to see and trace the hand of Hashem guiding how you got here today. And this is the greatest miracle of them all. This is the greatest miracle of all the miracles that happened in the Midbar, of all the miracles that happened in the desert, are these stops, is this journey, is the fact that we got here. You see this idea also when it comes to Bikurim. The farmer who would bring Bikurim comes on Beis HaMikdash, stands to the Kohen and says, here's my first fruit, by the way, I used to be in Mitzrayim, then God did miracles and he took out of Mitzrayim and then we went through the desert and then this and then that and the delay and that. Yeah, just, just give me the first fruit. That's the mitzvah. Tie a ribbon, first fruit, deliver it. Uh, yeah, I got it. I don't need the whole background. What's the answer? When that farmer says, I'm grateful, the farmer is not just saying, I'm grateful for the first fruit. You know what the farmer is saying for? You know, this is, this is our experience today. Every simcha in our family, and I'm sure it's the same in yours. Somebody stands up, depends on the generation and the age and who is the matriarch or patriarch at that point in that simcha. 
and, and says something about the family story, right? It's a birth, it's a bris, it's a bar mitzvah, it's a bas mitzvah, it's a wedding, it's a sheva, it's an ofrof. They talk about the name, they talk about your grandparents, they talk about your great-grandparents. What they're saying is, we're not just celebrating this moment in time. We're not freezing the frame on today. Let's talk about how we got here. Hashem, we're overwhelmed with gratitude. Do you know what your great-grandparents navigated? Do you know what they sacrificed? Do you know who they lost? Do you know what it means that you have this ufraf? Do you know what it means that you're naming this baby girl? Like the farmer with Bikurim and like Parshas Masay. That's the Masay of our life. And every Jew, like the Jewish people then, and if we had more time, I would tell you this fantastic, thick, I hope they have one on Dvarim. I haven't even looked yet because I love it. It's so much fun. It's so fantastic. All this notion of this tradition that we have that every Jew goes through the same number of stops from Bashem Tov, Nesam Sofer, and others, that we have to look at our lives and try to trace the same journey, the same stops, and see the same guiding hand of Hashem. We don't live in the present. Of course we live in the present. It's the only dimension that we can impact. But we live in the present with an enormous awareness of the past and tracing the past because how do you know where your next stop is if you don't know where your previous stop was, if where you're coming from? So there's so much more to say, but we're out of time. So until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.